you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Ulrich Bursell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out on digital, DVD, and Tubi right now. Wow. My name is Eric Toms. I'm the producer of the Making Movies is Hard podcast, and I'm a thriller comedy filmmaker. My first film, Bakersfield Noir, will be out later this year. Do, do, do. Today, we welcome first-time filmmaker Corey Deshawn on the show to talk about his feature film, Daughter, which he wrote, directed, produced, and edited. Uh, Eric also talks to him about his extensive career as a television writer and getting over the curse of finishing your, your first movie. Ooh, I want to listen to this. But first, Eric, how are you doing today? I am, if I can be very Southern California and very Zen, I'm being thankful for my day today uh, and trying to give thanks because I got the chance that I got up, uh, sent my kids off to school, and then I got to just write a whole lot. Uh, And then had a meeting with you and lovely Liz and then got to put away laundry. And I was like, all right, I got to... I got a. This is a pretty good day so far, and the kids came home and they're safe and happy and uh, doing well in school. And so, hey, everything's everything's aces. Uh, and that I think sounds pretty great. I think I, I'm extra uh, zen and chill because we have picture lock on my uh, on my feature, so that is I feels like one giant thing off of my plate. So talk to me about that. What was it like for you to get to picture lock? Was it like a big, like either hemming and homing over some decisions? Was it more like, you know, just making sure that it's perfect? Like what, what was that last like couple sessions like before you could actually say it's locked? It was, the whole thing was absolute hell because, um, <laughs> it's because I star in the film as well. So oh, no. I'm staring at me. So like you, I think as a filmmaker, you're you're looking at your, you know, you're looking at your rough edit and, you know, of course you're beating yourself up to a certain degree. Like, ah, we didn't get that angle. Or I wish on the day where I thought I'd do that, but I I have that. And then on top of it, I have my own acting as well. And I'm like, Oh my God, look at this jackass. So I could watch it for about 15 seconds at a time. And then I would have to go scream into a pillow and then come back and watch. So it felt like it took forever for us to get here. Um, but my, uh, I've had two editors work on it. There was a, a lovely woman uh, named Lauren uh, who's out in Texas, and she did the AE work for us. And then my buddy Joel Wetterstein here in Los Angeles uh, did the did the, the nuts and bolts work, and they both did a fantastic job. So I am delighted. Was that by design to have you know because your 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 main editor didn't want to do the AE work, so you had to find another AE person to do that, or what, why did that? come that way no i had originally i was going to be the ae at first um and this was right at the beginning of the 2020 lockdown um and it was really slow going and i was having a hard time because my kids of course you know had to be homeschooled and my wife was now home and so i was trying to do that and to edit uh and in our friend group we had uh there's a couple we knew the guy really well and then he had gotten with this girl named Lauren and she they had moved to Los Angeles and they had just started making inroads getting editing work and then the lockdown happened they both lost their jobs but then he picked up a job in Oregon for a to to be the editor and camera guy on a gold panning reality show 
So oh, wow. she she was in the house by herself, and it was a little like I think eight hundred square foot apartment. Uh, and so we all of our buddies would all take turns just taking her for a walk or going to like sit outside and go talk to her just because she was alone. She really didn't know anybody. So uh, we were mm. going for a walk one day and she's like, I'm just so bored. I wish I had something to do. And I said, well, I've got this movie if you want to put it together. And she's like, I'm just a reality show editor. Do you think I'm good enough to do this? And I said, for this movie? Yes, you are more than qualified to do this. And she <laughs> she did an amazing job. I mean, it wasn't just like AE, like, you know, a build. Like she really did like the first the first edit and she did such a wonderful job. So I am delightful. Uh, I'm, so, I'm so happy for her. She did such a great job. So thank you. Thank you, so Lauren, wh- but why? But, but why the switch to the other editor? Just because she was not, she became unavailable over time? Was that reason or? She just felt that she, she, one, she did end up getting more jobs and things, but she just didn't feel she was up to snuff uh, doing doing the movie herself. And so I, uh, okay. yeah, and so it, I was, and I happened to be talking to a buddy. Uh, I run a thing in Southern California, I've mentioned this before, called The Night of Shorts Night, which is a free short film showcase. And so there's a lot of filmmakers that I'm friends with. And I happened to be having uh, drinks with one of them uh, kind of towards the end of the pandemic, we were outside, and he had mentioned how he really needed a project, and he just was going through a difficult creative time. And I said, well, I've got this movie that's nearly done. Do you want to do that? And he, he jumped at it. He was super excited. So oh, I wow. said, yeah, sure. Sounds good, man. Um, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, it was really great. And uh, he was, I got to say, he was cutthroat because uh, the script is about 107 pages long. When he gave me back the first edit, it was 118 minutes. I said, wow, you got rid of a lot. And it moved yeah. really quickly. But then I had to say, like, well, there's certain story elements we have to put back in here. But, yeah, he did a great job. So what's the final length? I think it's going to be right under 90 minutes. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Boom. And I really so wanted to get there. Yeah, yeah. I, I really didn't want it to be less than that just because I think, you know, I've always grown up. Like, movies are 90 minutes or over. Um, how was your when you did your first video lock for for the alternate? How was that? Was that a struggle? Oh, terrible! Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, like I think like trying to decide like all the little things that I'd made all the right decisions and that you know like this was the way, especially with the ending scene that like I edited it correctly um, and that like you know all the things I cut out I wanted to leave out and you know because I cut a lot of the movie out you know like. Like, yeah, probably, yeah, just tons and tons of scenes got cut. So, mm-hmm. um, and then this movie got kind of rewritten in post two to a degree. And so there's just a lot that had gone on. So finally deciding that it was done and, and moving on was a big thing. And then, of course, I think I went back and, like, made a couple changes after I started color and sound and um, and visual effects, which was, like, not favorable by my post team they did not like that i did that but it was basically like things that i realized like once you saw it kind of together it was like well we don't actually need this extra little bit we should take this out you know or somebody comes late to the game with an idea and is like oh well you know maybe those that one shot is not a great shot to to have or maybe if you change the, the timing of this sequence in this way it'll be way better you know and so that that was sort of I think the ones that we tweaked with the most were were probably the just the end action sequence, just to get the timing and the sound and the, everything right. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, it was just a very emotional experience. It's funny because you say like, oh, you're staring at yourself the whole time. And so it's like, you know, you have to yell into a pillow. It's like I felt that way and I wasn't in the movie, you know, but, but it was because it was such a personal story. It was yeah. like, you know, and I'd been working at it for so long and I had put a lot of my own like personal um, success kind of into this movie is like getting to make my first feature was like a really big deal. Yeah. And so it's like, well, if it sucks, then it's like, what's the point? (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I kind of felt like, yeah, I just felt that I felt a lot of pressure throughout the whole process, but it's, it's nice that you got there and yeah. I I have heard from like, I think it was Wes Anderson or Martin Scorsese or something like that. And he's pretty much said like, if you don't look, if you look at your first assembly and you're not nauseous, you've done something wrong or you shouldn't be a filmmaker in general just because it's like, right. Yes. It, it's so <laughs> personal. It's you put all of this work into it and you're like, Oh, did I just waste everybody's time? And then over time, yeah. like you add more and more stuff. You like the, the story gets sharper and you start adding like, you know, sound effects and your composition. You're like, Oh, okay. Okay. I guess this is a movie. This is a movie. We did it. Yeah. 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 Um, but you know, what's going on with me? I don't know. Uh, yeah, basically like wrapping up these two post projects that I've been working on for a while, kind of on the side. Um, one of them is like basically done, like Mm -hmm. where I I have like almost no more input to be done. I basically can't wait until I can take these hard drives and put them in their boxes and then ship them back to whence they came. I don't want to deal with them anymore. Uh, and the other one is going really smoothly. Like I basically have sunk more than half the movie and I have like four or five partial days left to sync and then like two full days. So, and I go really fast. Like I basically do a day in like two hours. So, or less depending yeah, I it's really I got this groove going where it just really sings, you know, and there's a certain way they want me to put it together and I label everything and I add the scripty notes into Premiere and it's like this whole process. But like I kind of have it down to the science where like I do one half of it first, like the, either the labeling or the syncing. And then once that's done, then I move on to the other half. And then, you know, working in these partial scenes, it's like half of it's already done. So it's like they go really fast. It just sucks. Like sometimes when the time code sync didn't work properly and like the time code is not matching or close to matching with the camera, that's when it gets to be a real slog. And I'm, I'm working on a day right now where that's the case and it's just a pain. Um, uh. Yeah. I haven't written anything. I don't know. You probably, you, you listen to all the podcasts, but yeah. um, you know, you, you, we don't talk on them, but uh, yeah, you know, I've been planning to try to start writing this script that I've been working on for a long time that I'm probably like halfway done with but i just keep on not doing it i've been thinking about it a lot and then i've been thinking about the movie i want to write after this movie is done <laughs> but I, I basically decided that like because i tried writing the other one first yeah i tried just switching from this one to the other one it just didn't work and i think i just need to get this other one out first so like once that one's out then i'll feel like clear to like re- go on to the next one um are, are you the kind of guy who has a zillion ideas or do you just hammer one idea to death i have a lot of ideas i have like a whole yeah. like spreadsheet of ideas basically oh, wow. that, like i'm waiting to write you know but it's just like they don't don't anything happens with them because they just sit there, you know, and yeah. a lot of them aren't very good so that they don't really deserve for anything to happen to them. Yeah. But like it's these two, like one that I've got halfway done. It's like, it just feels like it's so close to being 
not, I wouldn't say it's like the first draft's going to be like ready to be sent to anybody, but at least it would be a full draft where I could polish it and then it could be ready to be sent to somebody, you know, sure. in a year yeah. maybe or six months. Um, and then the other one is like, you know, it's this movie that like I feel the same way about it that I did with the alternate where it's like this is like a really powerful story that I really want to tell. So like I'm going to make this movie one day. It's like whether I make it now or in 30 years, like, you know, like this is a movie that I will do, you know, yeah. I don't necessarily feel like that way about the other one. The other one's fun. Like I want to make that movie, but um, it's not like this other one. This other one's like, this is such a cool idea. I've never seen anything like this before. Um, it's totally up my alley. It's super low budget. It's like all the right things that you need, right? It's like super contained, like three or four actors, like a few locations. It's got all the goods. So I just need to write it. And then, one day make it. But I'm I'm really convinced that this movie will be made by me. I just don't All know right. when. You'll be like you know, Tom Schulman, so. uh, where he made yeah. his first movie 20 years ago, and then his second one, like, yesterday. Well, I mean, hopefully there'll be other ones in between. But mm. um, I think there will be. <laughs> the second one, second one yesterday. I love that. Um, <laughs> yeah, pr- pretty much. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I feel like it's one of those things that'll just ferment, ferment and you know, grow and become this thing. And eventually I'll be able to make it, you know, and and it could be my next movie. Who knows? That's yeah. possible too. But, um, I just not really putting any rush or time concern on it. I got, a, I got a daughter to raise here. Yeah. You know, I got other things to, to focus on. So you get, I, I mean, having know. said that, I don't want to be that guy, but you also, the missus has a bun in the oven. So your, your time, yes. your time. And like, what is it like four months or so is going to be cut dramatically. Uh, yeah, what is it? It's like five. Yeah, five months. Five months. A little, little over five months. You can so, you can knock out a script in five months. I think I'll finish. I think I'll definitely finish the first one that's halfway written already in five yeah. months. I don't know if about this other one. I don't know if that one will get out. I mean, I definitely I've got like characters written. I've got the whole outline. I've got like you know I know what's gonna happen. I know the beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. Um. It's really a tricky idea, though, so I think I'm going to take a long time getting this one down because it's just there's a lot that needs yeah. to happen. The the one that I'm writing right now is it's eight characters in one location. Like, that's it. Like, the, the whole thing is self-contained. And I have had this idea for oh, wow. years uh, because I've always wanted to wow. challenge myself of, like, just doing something like, you know, a 12 Angry Men or... Uh, you know, uh, albino alligator, something along those lines, a like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, where you're really just in kind of one location. Mm. Um, and I know two, two out of three of those references. Okay. Good about that. <laughs> albino alligator is, is kind of a deep cut. Uh, Gary yeah. Sinise, fantastic <laughs> movie. Um, oh, but, uh, cool. but yeah, like I had to, it took years for it to kind of percolate. And then I wrote so many like, backstories to each of the characters and then kind of like molded those and then wrote outline after outline after outline. Oh, so cool. it took, yeah, that like the, the ones like that you're talking about, I think it is a good idea to sit on them for quite a while and really just get as much, get as many ideas together as you can and then, and then attack it. Because I think, I, I don't know if you've had this, but I, I've certainly had those moments where like, Oh, I got this great script idea and you start writing and you're like, Oh, it's 45 pages long. Well, that's not a movie. That's uh, that's a very long short. Yeah. That's all that is. Exactly. So, gotta yeah, let it. Like a, gotta let the take the buns out of the of oven when they're ready. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
Um, the other thing that you should make sure to do um, whenever you're ready or even right now is to go to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash podcast. This is the way you can support the show, keep it going, uh, allow Eric to create wonderful bonus episodes like this one where he just goes off and does an interview on his own or sometimes I'll join Eric in the future, I think. We haven't done that yet. He's just done two solos. But, um, but yeah, it's kind of like a way where if like the three of us don't agree – that, an, a, 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 you know, a guest is, you know, we should have a guest on the show. It's like, well, then let's just do a bonus episode and just do it anyways, you know. And then uh, Eric has graciously taken on the editing of these, which is awesome. And so this has been a really fun process to add these to the show. Um, but it would not happen without your support. And uh, another thing on the Patreon page that you can get, which you can get nowhere else, is all the back episodes of the show. There's about... Um, Jeez Louise, 350 plus episodes uh, in the backlog that you don't have access to if you don't uh, subscribe to Patreon. So definitely do that if you'd like. It'd be really great. Um, but without any further delay, here is Eric's chat with Corey Deshaun. Uh, Corey, nice to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Nice to meet you as well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. I'm going down like sucking down gallons of coffee over here, dude. It's it's the morning brown. It's what you need, absolutely. Uh, well, thank you for coming. Making movies is hard. Podcast. Uh, congratulations on daughter. First off, uh, this sounds like it was a, a huge undertaking uh, for the amount of work that you put into it yourself. Uh, give me the elevator pitch for daughter. Yeah. So Daughter on the Surface is about a young woman who is kidnapped and inducted into this bizarre family to live as their surrogate daughter. And she's told as long as she plays along, she won't be harmed. But if she rebels against this idea, then some harm might come to her. And what is she going to do in this scenario? Mm -hmm. And if you can talk about it, what was the rough budget for this film? Um, we are a SAG ultra low. I'll say okay. that. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. I know a lot of people have to be very tight-lipped about things. We try and be as transparent as possible because everyone on our uh, show is, we're all filmmakers. So we understand, like, the game that you have to play. But at the same time, we're, we're always trying to find some sort of transparency. Like, how did you make this? On what level did you make this? Um, and so it just in, in that vein... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, like, it's so interesting. Like, yeah, like, it's, it's a psych ultra low. And yet we still had, you know multiples of resources more than what someone else would have to make a low budget film. And then another, a film that would have 30 times our budget is still technically a low budget film. As designed by <laughs> <laughs> what the spectrum of this really is. It's that's above our pay grade. That's some other person who's designed all the contracts. God knows how it works. Uh, how did the whole project come together? Cause it seemed like at least from the, from looking from the outside in, you were really the driving force in making this movie because you played, you, you wore so many hats. Yeah, I mean, that was out of um, necessity, I would say, we just gotta get it done. But the, I would say the synthesis point of this project was actually uh, maybe as early as a year before it, conversations that I was having with uh, Vivian, who plays daughter and uh, was a producer on the film, her and I feeling like we were in similar places in our careers where the industry wanted to impose certain types of artificial limitations on what it is that we could do, or what we could be capable of, just based on who we are, our demographics, where we were in our careers, things like that. And we were both just kind of just feeling this sense of frustration and thought, well, one way out of this is that we could do something on our own. We could just go out and build something from the ground up that will create 
a landscape where we can challenge ourselves in the ways that we want to be challenged uh, as creators and see what comes out of that and just completely divorce it from the expectations of the film industry and just go out and make this thing and, and see what happens. And we didn't quite know what it would be at the time, but she was kicking around an idea of playing uh, a family unit that would include Vivian and Elise. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, Vivian and, excuse me, uh, Elise and Ian. Uh, Vivian and Elise had previously played uh, mother-daughter before on, on in Sugar, so I had been introduced to Elise and been introduced to Ian as well uh, through, again, the same circle of friends. And so that idea was in my head very early on. And she ultimately decided to, to, that she wanted to focus on something else creatively. So I inherited the idea of Vivian, Ian, and Elise playing this family unit. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. And just started to sit on that for months probably before the concept of what would become daughter uh, started to take shape. But it was from day one, knowing at that point that I was going to be writing something for these three actors. And where I was in my career, uh, you know, I'd, I'd gotten some, had success as a writer, I'd gotten some films made, I'd, um, I'd sold like a, a feature page prior to that, I'd, I'd sold scripts. And this was maybe the third attempt at what would have been my first film to direct. Mm-hmm. A couple of, you know, false starts along the way. Same one that never really got off the ground, one that was starting to get off the ground, had a little money involved, or, you know, really, really ambitious project that would have shot in North Africa. And that oh, would wow. get everything it needed mm-hmm. at the time. So I decided to, you know, hit the pause button on that and shift focus to daughter. And this was, you know, coming into 2019. And for me, it was a matter of, I, I need to get over the curse of the first time director. Uh, you know, <laughs> two years prior that was also you know made for a low budget you know i was told by the company like no you cannot direct this film because you have not already directed a feature like that was the only metric it, it doesn't matter you know, they have nothing else to judge talent on or to base that decision on other than have you already done it without us mm. and at that point it's like all right that's the last time somebody's going to say that to me I need to go. <laughs> I need to go. <laughs> um, it ju- it just needs to exist. And so going into this, I was I was in a unique position, I think, to be able to take on so many roles because I my journey here started as a production assistant. I was on you know sets as a PA, on set PA, off set PA, and production coordinator. I've been a first AD. Like I I'd done um, like all these other roles. I'd learned production so well. Like that was my film school, just working in it. Um, I had taken a UCLA producing program when I first got to LA that was just a very, you know, rudimentary ground level view of how does the business of the industry work? What is the concept of budgeting? What is the concept of scheduling? But I knew enough coming out of that program to pay attention to those areas when I was on sets, when I was working in offices. And I got to learn from, you know, top of their game line producers on major studio films, top of their game ADs on major, you know, uh, studio projects how they, they go about their jobs. So when it came time to daughter, finally, I was sitting on this wealth of knowledge to say, you know what, the amount of energy, the amount of effort it would take to go out and try to find the producer of the film, I can spend that same amount of energy and effort becoming the producer of the film. I did the first draft of the schedule. I did the first draft of the budget. I put the business plan together. I went out with that business plan to start to raise the money. For, like, why not at this point? Like, why give that power to somebody else? If this is about me wanting to direct my first film, I'm going to take responsibility and put myself in a position to do so. And I was fortunate that I had this group of friends, Vivian and, and Jess, who's one of our producers, who were willing to go on this journey with me and say, like, yeah, this will be the thing we do together. 
Uh, I have so many questions. Um, I, I, the first thing I, I want to start, go back a little bit because, uh, now correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of came to filmmaking later. It seemed like you really started your life uh, in music. Uh, and so how did you get to music and then how did that music then bridge over into films? Yeah, I, I would say it was a little of both. So I, I got into music, I want to say when I was five years old, I think this is the right, like the right age, was five years old, uh, visiting a friend of my mother's who happened to have a piano in their house. And me, the five-year-old, just sat behind the piano and just started to press little notes and just start trying to make something out of it. And didn't realize it, I was setting up myself or something at the time, but being observed as not a little kid who's just banging on keys, making noise, but I'm trying to do something. And that and my mom inspired, well, maybe let's put him in piano lessons and let's see where that goes. And so as a little kid, I just started learning piano and I stuck with that throughout, you know, the end of high school, you know, 15 something years, you know, until like whatever it was going and like becoming this like pianist, like musician. And that bridged into wanting to learn other instruments. I started to play saxophone. I started to play the drums. I started to experiment with all kinds of other things. I started to write music. For me, the interest in creativity is always in the creation of it. So I was learning these things so I could write them. As a little kid, I was just writing sheet music, trying to make my own little film scores and stuff like that. And, and that just kept evolving and evolving and evolving. And I would say the interest in filmmaking was developing then too, because just the idea of telling stories, I was always interested in creative writing as a kid. Uh, when I was in you know, fourth grade, I started writing a book in pencil and spiral notebooks. It was like, oh, okay, this is really cool. And then I get, you know, 200 handwritten pages into this thing. I'm like, you know what? I like movies a whole lot more than I like reading. Why don't I do that? <laughs> <laughs> and what's crazy, though, is that for a while, I thought that was the inception point of wanting to be a filmmaker. Like after the experience of writing that, uh, trying to write that book and saying, oh, I want to learn how to write scripts. And I actually got my hands on a copy of Movie Magic Screenwriter back then, so and started yeah. to self learn script format. That was my first program as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like I, I taught myself that uh, I had like one script to reference, and for a while I thought that's where it started. But it wasn't a at that time it was never a career pursuit. Like if you would ask me then what I was going to do, I would have said musician. I'm like no something in music. As I got older into high school, I started studying uh, computer technology mm. and, you know, started to think about what my life might be as an adult. It was more of like a practical concern of like, I need to learn something that will get me a job. I'll always have music. I'll always have creativity, but I guess I got to get real now. And, you know, I got to <laughs> be employed. You got to become a grown up. Yeah. I started studying tech and then I go into college for a you know, bachelor of science and IT and I'm working in that field, but I never gave up any of the creative pursuits. It was just something that I was always going to be doing. So I was never pursuing filmmaking as a career until after all of that, after I graduate college, after I've been working in the IT field for five years, I was doing a lot of creative stuff on the side, photography, videography, but I hadn't shot any of my own writing yet. And that was always this, um, <clears throat> always in the back of my head, one day I'll, I'll make a movie, just in my backyard, like whatever, because I think it'll be fun. One day I'll make a movie, but it was never, I'm going to go to Hollywood, I'm never going to be in LA doing this. And when that time came, it was after my degree, I decided to take some time off of work and just make this little short film, like write something to go out and make. And it was a really ambitious 30 page, nine day shoot short film. I hired people off a, a Craigslist and crowdfunded for it and my friends and just set out to make this thing. And that was when it hit me for real that this is what I was supposed to be doing the entire time. 
that was the first time I tasted being on my own set as a writer, director, producer, bringing something to life, working with actors. Nobody will ever see that thing, but that was, (laughs) (laughs) that was what solidified it for me that if I don't go do this, I am going to be miserable for the rest of my life. That was October of 2012. By December of 2012, I lived in LA. I, Went back out of that, quit my job, packed up everything, moved here. I'm going to figure this out when I get here. But I just had to be here at that point. It was a realization that I would rather try and fail doing this thing than not try. And what was really crazy is that after all of this, after I started to work as a PA and like started to get my footing here, my mother sent me this little worksheet thing that I did in third grade. Uh, a year before I started trying to write that book. And it was one of those, like, what do you want to be when you grow up things? And I wrote film director on that piece of paper. I have no memory of that. <laughs> I have no idea how I even knew what a film director was in the third. I have no idea. I knew I love like Star Wars and stuff like that and Jurassic Park. And like, I have no idea where that came from, really. But that was the confirmation. Like, oh, yeah, it really was. It was always there. Well, you know, and to speak to that, I have to say, you know, I want to get into your influences just because I was immediately blown away by this movie. The opening credits had me because it has such a strong late 70s, early 80s feel to it with what you did, the feeling, the shot, especially the the, the opening credits, having all of your credits right up front. It had a very dual or the hitcher kind of feel to it. So, were, yeah, were you, were you watching movies back then? Or did you come to become like a cinephile later on? And then for this particular movie, like, oh, this is, these are the kind of elements I need to pull from. Yeah. No, I, I would say I was always watching movies. But it was never any sort of like cinephile encyclopedic knowledge of movies until much, much later. I, I never started studying movies until I made that serious choice to be a filmmaker and move to L.A., I was just a casual lover of them for a while. But it, it's weird. I have like distinctly different memories of how I would watch films then versus now. Hmm. And well, coming into something like this, I would say like that, like the credits and all that, it just came out of the idea of what this film was going to be conceptually as I was putting it all together. I wanted this to be something that would not necessarily look like it was nostalgic for another age, but actually made back in time. Like it was made decades later and just now uncovered. Oh, interesting. Limit myself to even some of the technology that was available then, not just in shooting on film, but we shot on old camera packages. Like we shot on a camera package from the mid nineties. Cause that's, you know, instead of going with the most modern gear and that meant no HD monitoring that meant no, you know, video village, everybody's, you know, looking all over your shoulder saying, what's that in the frame? Huh? Nope. You can't see it. You just see <laughs> over here working it out this way. Cause we wanted those types of limitations and even those types of creative mistakes to become part of the visual language of the film as if it really was being made back then. So you wanted to, you wanted a hair to be in the gate. That's really what you were looking for. <laughs> well, the, the little like the scratches, the little flashes, like none of that stuff is added in post. Like there's a there's a couple of shots in the film where you do see that like end of the, like the you know, light flash sort of thing. No, that's us running out of film in the take. That's what, <laughs> that became where the shot cut. <laughs> now, out of curiosity, why did you decide to to give yourself that kind of limitation? Because you know. I think it's very romantic. You know, I mean, I, I'm a photographer as well, and I shoot on film. Uh, and there are plenty of times where it's like, oh, my exposure was off, and I don't know until three weeks later when I get the film back from the developer. Uh, I mean, that's got to be 
kind of terrifying not to have those safety nets like, you know, having your playback monitor right there with you, you know, having some sort of like digital backup, uh, shooting on film itself. Because when you start, man, when you start hitting record and you hear that flap, 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 that is just money falling out of the sky. <laughs> so, Sound of money burning. Yeah. That's <laughs> why did you decide to, why did you decide to, to walk the tightrope without a net underneath you? Yeah. Well, I think that an over-reliance on the safety net can become its own hindrance. Mm. And by that, I mean, when you have the ability to focus on so many other things that are not the performance of the actors or, or that are not creating an environment for your crew to do the best work possible, mm. those are the things that suffer. So when you're back behind the monitor staring at a frame, like, what, is, that, is that chair in the right place? Is that here? Or if you're, you know, trying to do a million little things, running all over the place, and saying, oh, "No, let's let's watch that take back haul and everybody walk off the set. I want to spend ten minutes over here." And did we do that right? Did we want to try it again? What you're doing is you're limiting the amount of time you have in the day to be interfacing with your cast and with your crew. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up suffering is your ability to direct your actors and your ability to communicate with your crew when you're so worried about checking yourself and like looking, you know, back and did I do the right thing? You know, second guessing yourself second guessing your crew. Is that how the camera should have moved? Is that what you really should have done in that take? And in a micro budget film, when you've got such a tight schedule and you've got so little time in a day and we're doing the big chunks of dialogue, seven to 10 page, uh, you know, days every single day, we don't have time to do that. At the end, like we don't, we don't have time to do that. And I want to maximize the time that I'm spending in front of my actors. And because I, what I feel like at the end of the day is you can do everything else right. Like you can have a film that sounds great. You can have a film that looks great. Like it could be technically perfect, but if the performances are not there, you don't have a good film. Mm. And when you, uh, as the director, are worrying about everything else outside of the performance of your actors, what ends up suffering is your directing. Mm. Yeah, you know, it, and I, uh, it, all of that makes so much sense because in watching this film, as you said, you know, you wanted this to almost um, be uh, like a, a film that was made in the early 80s that was just uncovered. And so you're, it's not, it doesn't have the feel of a very modern film where you're cutting every few seconds. It's like, you know, changing a bunch of angles. It's very long shots, maybe the camera moving, but you're really staying with the actors for a long period of time. So that all makes perfect sense. What was your schedule like? What, how long were you shooting for? What? We, we got into it. Uh, with the idea that it would be a 12-day shoot, I think like a spillover into a 13th, like pickup, that sort of thing. Um, that plan got thrown out of the window. Unfortunate <laughs> circumstances. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll get into that. That's a Socratic like story. But that was the idea. So we knew this is something that we're shooting this in two weeks. And for a script, I want to say it was somewhere in the 90 to 100 page range. Like I knew it was going to be a big dialogue day and, or, or big dialogue days every day. Um, and what I was actually basing that model on was like being a PA on those little like $100,000 films that would do those two week shoots. And I would watch these mall and they would be some like awful movies. I would watch this mall and say, you know what? Like we don't, we don't have to accept that it's not going to be a good movie. Like if you just, if you take this same amount of resources and just focus your, your time and attention in different areas, like you can make something really good in this model. Like you don't have to just throw your hands up and say, Oh, it's some B movie, whatever. It's not, nobody's going to watch it. Like you can be intentional in a different way. And that was the idea going into this to even try something this ambitious. But that that tightness in the schedule also led to 
why it even made sense to shoot on film or to shoot long takes and things like that. Because when you're in that tight of a schedule, you already don't have time to sit there and just roll and roll and roll and roll and roll all day and find it. You don't have time to do 20, 30 takes and then put a close up on you 10, 20, 30 takes of that. You don't have time to make the safety net so that you can decide what your movie is and post six months later. You only have time to shoot the thing really that is going to be the final edit of the film. And when you look at it like that, sure, you can shoot the safety net anyway, but again, like it's, it's a time, it's, an, it's a resource allocation thing. Do you want to burn your actors that way? Do you want to have them rushing through these takes just so you can get another size on it, just so you can have a cut point just in case? Or do you want to eliminate that just in case model and give the actors the space to get it right in that take and to get it right in that setup and create more time for yourself to get it right in that way and then just move on? You do it, you know, whereas once you shoot two, three takes about the most, if you get it in one, we move on after one. Mm. And and the film of it all is also like putting that same level of confidence and trust in your crew. Because I think they appreciate that too, when you're not just over their shoulder saying, oh, is that focus pull? Did it really get there? Did we really do that? Is that chair in there? Like all that stuff. And you just say, hey guys, you're here because you're all great at what you do. Do that. That's all I'm at. Like, just do do you. Like, do, like challenge yourselves, push like, and giving them that level of, of confidence in the filmmaker, I think they appreciate that. I think they like it and it makes them want to show up with their A game every single day. And their A game is a great A game. Yeah. They do show up. And we have this like great uh, look and feel of the film because of our ability to focus our attention in that ways instead of on the backup plan. Hmm. Um, I want to go back a little bit. Uh, so you... I'm always curious about this. So you grew up uh, on the East Coast. You grew up in Florida. Um, why go to Los Angeles and not to New York? New York's a little bit closer. Uh, you know, if, if you have like this writing background and musical background, like, and of course, there's an incredible scene there. What, what was the choice to come to Los Angeles? I think it, it seems like even the amount of stuff that gets shot in New York and even the, and I think it's probably true that New York is even a little bit more indie film friendly in that sense. It still seems like in the grand scheme of things, everything that gets made in New York, the deal still gets signed in LA. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's an, all right. This is the epicenter of it. At the end of the day, I kind of just need to be here because when I don't know exactly how I'm going to know, like I wasn't coming out here with any money, any job, anything like that. It was just, I'm going to, I need to figure out how to make this work. And this seemed like the place where that would be the most possible. Like just put yourself as close to the epicenter as possible and figure it out. And this hmm. felt like it was the environment to figure it out. Now, so you come out here, like you said, you got the shirt on your back and you end up finding like, you know, PA work. So how do you start getting those first few writing jobs? Because you, you had quite a career as a writer already. Yeah, that was figuring it out in any given scenario. And it was really just about putting yourself in an opportunity to put the ball in someone else's court. Like by which I mean, focus on your writing, have a script, and then what? Then get yourself in a position where somebody will ask to read that script. And if they ask to read it, you got to be able to hit send. Ball's in your court. And that's it. That's all you can do. But you, you don't want to get to that position and not have something. Mm -hmm. And so when I, when I got here and I took the UCLA program, one of our guest speakers on that program was uh, Adam Fogelson, who at the time was the chairman of Universal. He did this thing at the end of his little lecture. Where he just writes, writes his email up on the board and says, Everybody in this class, you can send me one email and I promise you I'll read it. That's all. But, you know, you know, 
do with that what you will. I think some people messaged him, some people didn't. Um, I did, because again, open door, why not? And what that ultimately led to was him saying, send me a script. Within six or seven months of moving to LA, I'm having my script go through the story department of Universal. But guess what? I don't have a script for Universal. I have <laughs> one feature that I've written at that point. And it, that one feature was a tiny slice of life, black led indie drama pre-Moonlight. Universal is not making that goddamn movie. <laughs> uh, so, but, but that's what I send. And I th- and then two things happened. One, it, it was that realization of like, this could have gone completely differently if I had something for Universal at that moment. But then the other one was like, that was my first time like having a script like really read in that capacity. And the feedback, I mean, obviously it was a pass. Uh, the feedback, <laughs> it wasn't bad. You know, they do like they did their coverage thing, like a scale of three to five or uh, one to five, whatever, and they gave it a three. It's like it's a pass. Like here's the strings, here's the wings. Well, they're just fair coverage. And I'm like, huh? They could have really ripped me to shreds in this, and they didn't. Maybe I do have a chance here. And that was the right, like, right timing and right level of confidence to say, like, okay, I could have been completely crushed in my dreams within the first six months, but that didn't happen. So maybe I can do this, and maybe I can just keep going and just try to work on other things and. If I'm ever in that position again, where somebody asked to read something, have something for them. And I ended up one degree of separation. My first writing credit was my first PA job. I get onto a set as a volunteer PA. I just bust my ass. That was my opportunity to show like, I'm serious. I can do this. And I ended up getting calls back from a bunch of different crew members on that to just go on to other sets. One of those uh, next projects is a couple months later, was my first office PA job. And the production coordinator of that uh, film was an indie producer in her own right. And, you know, just in one of those, um, you know, who are you? Nice to meet you kind of conversations. What do you want to do here? I was never the type of person to say, I'm here to be the best PA I can be. No, nobody is. I'm here to be a writer director. And this is my path to doing so. And that sparked a conversation. Of, oh, have you written anything? Like, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I have. I've, at the time, this was that same year. It's like, yeah, I've got this one feature. And I started to tell her about it. And what do you know? It's another opportunity. She says, oh, I'd love to read that someday. Oh, great. Sent. Balls in your court. And that's all you can do. She read it. She loved it. She just so happened to know of another filmmaker who was about to make his first film on a micro budget. And he needed script work done. Hmm. And she introduced me to him. I got the job to rewrite that script. And by job, I mean like I got paid 500 bucks or whatever to do it, but it was a job. It was a writing job. Yeah. And years later, that film got made and my credit was still on it because that was the deal. Pay me so little, regardless of what happens next, I'm guaranteed a credit on it. And that's that's what it is, just putting yourself in the position for that to happen. It's that that luck timing opportunity. You It won't happen if you're not here. So just get here and try to make it happen and be prepared for it if it does. Uh, fantastic advice. The earlier you had mentioned you were at a point in your career, you and your friends were at this point in your careers, you were feeling very frustrated. You, you felt like you'd kind of hit a wall. What was, what was some of the frustration that you were feeling? What were, what were some of the roadblocks that were being placed in front of you? And, and what were you doing? I mean, clearly this was your solve was like, just forget it. I'm going to do it myself. So what, what were some of the problems that you were facing? I think you get sold this sort of fantasy about what it might be like here to be a filmmaker or to be in pursuit of being a filmmaker. 
and this the scenario of oh you all you got to do is you got to come out with a script and somebody will read that script and they're going to want to make your movie that's not really how it works people don't want to make your movie they want to make the movie that is their man that they are mandated to make by their company if you can do that service for them great if not they don't care who you are or how good your script is they'll tell you to your face like wow this is great it's one of the best things i've ever read Call me if you have something that my company actually makes, though. <laughs> that, that, that is the conversation. And so you, you start to recognize that. You start to recognize that, okay, the, this journey, what I thought I was going to have to do to make work, that strategy has to change. I have to make myself employable on jobs like that. But that also means that I am not pursuing making the thing that I want to make, which is okay. That just means I have to do both. And I have to be able to jump you know, back and forth between those worlds in order to actually make a living out here as a creative person. And so, okay, great, I'm gonna do that. And I'm gonna continue to try to get myself into opportunities where I could you know, make something of my own. But that's when you then do get into those conversations, um, like the one on the, on the script that I saw, but no, you can't direct this because you haven't already. Like, well, what are you, what are you basing that on? I have, you know, at that point I had directed George films. I could put together a visual pitch of it. Here's why I can tell you, I can shot list this thing for you right now, but you're telling me I don't have the talent to direct it because you can't look at a completed feature and say, oh, look, it's, it's there, it exists, so therefore you can. Because nobody really knows what to base a decision like that on. So all they can really look at is, you know, something, uh, something that already exists, or you'll be one of those people who's lucky enough that a person will just be willing to take the swing on you. And that's where I think some of the demographic issues start to show themselves. Who is more likely to get the benefit of the doubt in their ability to deliver something and who is not? Mm. And the more you encounter or I encounter scenarios like that, the more I start to think I'm giving these people too much power over my future. I came here to do this. And it, and it contributed to this realization that if, if I want to be successful in the industry, I need the industry, but the industry doesn't need me. The industry is going to make all the money it's going to make without me here. Right? I have nothing to contribute to that regard. Even if I do, let's say the next film I make is the highest grossing film ever made. If it wasn't me, it was going to be somebody else who did it. Mm. They don't need any individual. They're going to be operating regardless. So what is it that I'm going to do to get myself to where I want to be? That has to be my responsibility. I can't continue to only get into that room only to then give something away to somebody else and say, please help me. And that was that just, you know, becoming my own producer thing and led to, you know, I think where I am now, it was that shift in mindset also created, I think an opportunity for me to do better writing because suddenly I wasn't worried about what someone else thought of a script. And mm -hmm. it was just, it was a giant weight lifted off me because I wasn't at that point trying to write my thing to fit their thing. I could just write my thing the way I thought it would be. And people would recognize that that was a better script than me trying to do something that I wouldn't otherwise naturally do. And so two things happened is I, that better script would get me into general meetings. It got me agents and got me managers. It would do all these things to actually set me up to start making money for real in the business as a actually, in, you know, paid employed WGA screenwriter. But then it left me to make my projects the way I want to make them and to be very selective in how I approach that and who I work with, because I no longer need to rely on that as a source of income. Yeah, going back to uh, you know really getting started, your representation. How did how did you end up finding your your managers, your agents, your 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 legal counsel, all of that? 
Yeah, it was all through referrals. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I would, well, I would say who I ended up picking was through referrals. It was weird. Everything kind of converged at once. And th- this happened eight years into the journey. I had already made daughter. I'd already been produced twice as a, as a writer. I'd already booked about four or five paid writing jobs on my own without agents or managers. And the, what ultimately triggered it was transitioning into TV also, uh, because there's, you know, there's not a lot of money in all this. Yeah, I was getting, I was getting paid enough as a writer to just live and just exist, but I'm not really making a lot of money. It's still a paycheck to paycheck thing. I just supplanted that from the production work that I was doing previously. Uh, through two completely unrelated paths, but just relationships, I got an offer to uh, go into a, a TV writing room as a consulting producer. I was on a million little things. And I had an offer from Sony to develop an original series. Mm-hmm. Those two things happened within the same 48 hour window, completely unaware of each other. It had nothing to do, like just two completely different paths that converged in that moment. When it rains, it pours. Right. At that same time, also a different script that, you know, one that I talked about, you know, what I consider to be the best thing I've ever written that would have, you know, shot in North Africa. That one was starting to circle the town a little bit just from people reading it and liking it because I'm not writing to someone else's expectations. I can just do, you know, write what I want to write. And people would say like, oh, yeah, this is a really good script. We're never going to make it, but it's a really good script. And I think this other person should read it. And it, and it starts to circulate that way. And so out of that, I started to have some managers, you know, wanting to reach out to me now that they'd seen this thing that was so different from anything else that they'd seen the script. That was all happening at once. But because of the TV offers, the simultaneous TV offers, the producer that I was working with on the Sony side, she walks me into the door um, in a couple of agencies, just saying, you just, you've got to meet this guy. Because at that point, I need representation. I was, you know, able to do it fine before that. Now I'm getting real offers. I need somebody to work this out. Um, I, so I ended up getting a lawyer through uh, a different referral at, at that time and then met with a couple of agencies, uh, a couple of management companies, and was able to pick who I wanted. And that's where the whole indie career thing, I think, really, really paid off. Because prior to that, all the other things that I did, being able to get daughter made, being able to sell a script and that got made and getting paid to write a script and that got made and then getting all these, none of those things really had much to do with any of the other. It was all an independent pursuit that happened to work out. And I was just willing to try everything. But when I got into these meetings with these reps, I'm able to sit there and list off what sounds like a career. Mm. I got this man, I got that man, then I made this. And then I got hired. Like, it sounds like it didn't feel like a career when I was doing it. I was like, what the fuck am I going to do next? It was <laughs> saying, trying to distill eight years of making this work down into a 20 minute conversation to them was impressive. Like, look what I was able to do without you. And I think that changes the dynamic of a conversation like that, of signing with reps for the first time. Because in my head, it's I've reached the point where it's not that I didn't think I didn't or thought I didn't need representation, but I figured out how to do it if I never got representation. Mm-hmm. I can continue to do this on my own if I have to. And so the conversation became, here's what I've done. Here's what I want to do next. How can you help me get there? versus please, please, please give me an opportunity. Hmm. It's just a it's just a shift in the dynamic of what that could be. And because of that, I knew that I was able to pick the right reps for me. Uh, I, I, I have so many questions, but I realized I, I missed a crucial crossroad a little while back. 
you had mentioned when you were shooting daughter originally you were going to do 12 days maybe a 13th you know for a pickup and then that all went out the window what what happened what was the what was the story there and how did we end up getting there so so i have all of this this perfect plan in place i had assembled this incredible team like we are ready to go do this thing and we and we're, we're executing it right and then a brush fire breaks out nearby this, this was in October 2012. We were shooting in Santa Clarita. The tick fire broke out, maybe something like four miles up the railway from where we were. We had to drop everything and evacuate the set. <laughs> and this was on like a Thursday afternoon or something like that. So we had to drop everything and we had to leave. We, uh, we lost the rest of the Thursday. We lost the Friday. We went into the weekend not knowing if that fire was going to continue to expand, burn through the entire, like that would have been it. That would have been it. No film. Uh, fortunately, we were able to come back on Monday and finish, finish out that week to, you know, finish the film, but we're not getting that day and a half back. We're not, there's no studio we can go to and say, hey, please give us more money. Like, no, we're, now I have to figure out how to do this without that. And so the final product of Daughter is only about 85% of what was written. There are some things that are just, there was no longer an opportunity to do completely gone like some of them were some really big moments that i was building up to gone not gonna happen i gotta figure out how to do this without it now and that meant reshaping the edit like rethinking how could this thing still be a film in the end and you know finally get something across the finish line we we play a game on um uh on the show and we just call it the game but it's uh i set up a scenario for our two hosts liz and Ulrich, and i it literally questions like this you know you're you're on set there is a brush fire you lose a day and a half there's all these different things that are gone what do you do in that situation so that's my question to you what do you do in that situation are you looking i mean that weekend how are you not freaking out uh, but also, are you looking at the script already and just saying like, well, look, we got to cut this, we got to cut this, we got to cut this, or are you just sticking with the original game plan and then getting all the footage into the edit and just say like, okay, here's what we have, what can we make? Yeah, it was, I would say it was a little bit of all of that. Like now, into that weekend, which coincidentally was my birthday weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday to you. <laughs> uh, going into that weekend, <clears throat> I kind of have just this general state of being that's like, worry about what you can control. I can't control that. So I just, I can't get pan Like me panicking is not going to do anything for anybody. So I just got to just sit there and say, all right, this is it. This is the scenario that I have to deal with now. And the thought process is, well, we wait and see. Do we go back on the Monday? If we don't go back on the Monday, can I make a short film proof of concept out of this, pitch it again, the new investors and try to keep going. But that would have meant though shifting it to something more commercial because now the budget would have had to get bigger we would have had to go over the ultra low that means we'd have to pay certain people more like then everything about it has to increase it has to change a little bit but maybe there was a path to do it that way literally starting from scratch with a proof of concept maybe who knows i'm not going to worry about it too much until i can control it so let's see what happens and then it just so happens we were able to go back at that point this is where not spending the previous week on a plan B really worked out because I had half of the film that I was going to make shot. I didn't have a, like a smaller percentage and a bunch of backups and things to cut to if something didn't work. I had half of the film. Well, all right, we still have this week left. Let's shoot the other half of the film. That, that meant pretty much the same plan, but accelerating a little bit more. Mm. Or I, 
I would have otherwise said, you know, we, we have to get this in four takes. Maybe now we have to get it in three. Maybe now on other days, if it was, oh, if we get it in one take, great, we could move on or we could do it again for safety. If we get it in one, maybe we're just moving on because we got to do something else. And it meant in other cases, uh, reducing certain things. And I think that that's where the film took a hit in terms of what's still on screen. There's one sequence in the film that I actually, I hate the way it looks. <laughs> I, I think it's a failing on my part as a director, um, you know, because of the circumstances, but it was a sequence that was planned to be shot over the course of like a day and a half that we had to reduce down to half a day. And that means a lot of what would have been needed to make that work isn't there. And I'm personally don't really like the compromise, but it is what it is. I can't, again, me sitting around whining, complaining about it doesn't do anything for anybody. I got to figure out the plan to move us forward and finish the film. And, you know, that's, that was the mindset for that final week. I, and to, to piggyback off of the mindset. So what you had mentioned, just, you know, being calm, being relaxed, only worrying about what you can control. That makes zero sense to my brain where it is just me taking a break on set and then going to the back room and screaming into a pillow because I can't control the world. Um, <laughs> have you always had that mindset? Was it just the sort of thing going into this, like into this project? Like, look, I'm going to have to really be focused or is it just, you just approach life like that? I think I do approach life like that in general um, because you know, there's so much that you can worry about in the world. And there's so much rightfully that you should worry about in the world. And you can get paralyzed by that worry and end up doing nothing with your life. And I don't want to do that. And then I, want to, <laughs> I, want, I want to try stuff. I want to go, I want to live, I want to experience. And so focusing on the things that are within my power, that it's, it's another like resource allocation thing. How much time can I really spend in existential dread before <laughs> I, I, I get up and go outside? You know, and uh, I can answer that question for you. I know exactly how long you can spend in existential dread. <laughs> the answer is 40 years. That too is that I'd even gotten that far, that I could even could be on a set as a filmmaker saying, this is my film, that I could even look back and say, people have been paying me for scripts the last couple of years. And how I got there, you know, when I was in, I grew up in Tampa, Florida, there's no path from Tampa to Hollywood. That's why I was never really seriously considering a film career. Like it, that, that bridge doesn't exist. They're there and I'm here. This is life here. So to even be in that position to have taken those swings to get me there, it's like, well, am I just living in the extra credit version of life now? <laughs> is, is like, is that, is that what that is? And it's sort of, I think maybe you could like, you know, double down into like dread and despair and, and anxiety, or you can kind of accept that maybe this is extra. And so maybe how, however temporary it might be, play with it while you're here, make the most of it while you're here. And just, again, just kind of continue to move forward and see what happens. Uh, I wanted to ask, because you've had such a varied career and you've written on television, you know, you've made films, you've written films. So if having said all of that, if you had the magic wand and you could create your perfect job or, or job that you really would, you know, be, feel very uh, um, uh, excited by, what does that look like? Where is that? Is that television? Is that film? Are you directing more? Are you writing more? Are you just producing? Like, how does that, how does that look in, in Corey's world? I would say 
I think a way to distill it down is I would want the career of a foreign filmmaker who gets to establish themselves in their language and their voice in their own country first, where Hollywood then taps them on the shoulder and says, hey, can you come do that for us? So like the examples of like a Yorgos Lanthimos or even a Denny Villeneuve, like people that have their own thing going that's working for them and then make that leap over to the other side and get to continue to be themselves in their bigger and bigger ways. Uh, so it would be like, if I could pick any career, it is the path of that indie filmmaker who can create their own footprint as a director and anything that they make, you see that footprint in a way. And if I could only do that, I would only do that. I can't only do that. It do that, that career path doesn't exist anymore. I'm not sure that it ever really existed for someone of my demographic in the first place. Mm. But what I can do is hold that for myself, continue to pursue that on my own, and do all this other stuff too to keep the lights on. And I think in a way doing both has allowed me to be better at both because it can take the pressure off of both sides. Like I was saying before, like I don't need to do my weird little indie stuff to pay the rent or I don't need to try to find personal creative fulfillment in my work for hire work. And relinquishing that responsibility from either side makes both sides more fun. I can go on a TV show that has nothing to do with who I would be as a filmmaker and just have fun contributing to it. Mm. And they're going to pay me more than any other thing would be paying me. Uh, you, you bring up, you know, being a, a foreign filmmaker and, you know, making their thing there and then coming to Hollywood. Uh, I am a huge Ang Lee fan. Uh, I think he's one of the masters and, <laughs> Uh, any chance I get to work this quote into a, a conversation, I always do, because I think it is one of the best best quotes. Uh, Ang Lee had always said, uh, production is shopping, post-production is cooking. And I love that term, and it sounded like you had this a bit on Daughter, you know, when you're dealing with everything that's going on, like, look, here's the stuff we're going to get, and then I'm going to take all of this into the kitchen, and now we're going to go ahead and make this into, you know, into what it is. Yeah, I love that. I, you know what? I'd take that a step further and say writing is writing your shopping list, and then production is getting there or is <laughs> out of half the shit you were trying to buy. Uh, there, there was even a version of that, I think, on Daughter, where from day one, I recognized the creative design that I had planned for the film had to change. And mm. that was just the practical size of the location. Like the house was really small. Like we made it look big and soap shooting wide lenses and all that, but it was a really small. That garage looked enormous. I was just jealous of the size of that thing. Like you're sitting, and that's that's the lensing. Even I, even in that garage, which probably was the biggest single space we had in that house to shoot in, I could not physically get the camera far enough away from the center of the room from the actors to shoot that garage the way I would have wanted to shoot it. And that was the case for almost every room that we went into there. It's, it's, it's not going to be physically possible to do this the way I thought it was going to be done. So this has to change. And I've got to find a way. And again, this is one of those scenarios where I can't spend time on that set panicking about, oh, no, my plan is not going to work. That's it's eating up time in the day to actually execute whatever the new plan is going to be. We don't have a bunch of money to pay people overtime every day. We don't have a bunch of money to extend the shoot. Whatever it is, the solve has to be right now. We have to figure this out and we have to continue to move forward and make our days. There's the other option is we don't have a film at the end of this. And that's not an acceptable option. So that that the time, the resource allocation that would have been panicking, whining about, I don't get to be the filmmaker. I was like, nope, I got to figure it out. That's the job. <laughs> and, so, and, and that's also why you want that 
you want to be able to create space for your actors to do their best work. You want to be able to create space for your crew to, to do their best work. Because in those moments like that, y'all are figuring it out. What's mm -hmm. going to happen? Uh, I think it is time for our final six questions. Um, what is the first thing you ever directed and how do you feel about it now? This could be like a student project. This could be, you know, uh, the first short that you ever did, whatever it happens to be. Um, I think the first thing I ever directed was a, a promo video for the probate show of a sorority at UCF. Uh, just And this was me doing, like, wanting to get into videography work after doing some photography and stuff like that and just having some friends in this uh, sorority and they were about to introduce their new line. And they wanted to do this, like, like horror film concept behind the video, like a found footage kind of thing. Like, oh, this could be cool. I think I could figure out a way to do this. And I think that was my first time, like, directing people. And that was almost an origin point of getting a little bit more to that point where a couple of years later, I was going to make my first short film. Mm. It was that, that little first little thing that just played to that, you know, auditorium of people on campus. And that's, that was it. <laughs> uh, what is the best filmmaking advice that you have received so far? The best filmmaking advice. I would credit this. It wasn't directly advice, but I interpret it as advice because of how profound I think it was. And it was something that Billy Ray said. Um, he was also a speaker at, uh, at in the UCLA program. And he, I want to say at the end of his lecture, he said, we were just talking about his like work mantra and stuff in general. He's one of the hardest working people in the business. I think it shows everything in his career. Uh, and what he said to the room was, I wish you all the best of luck, but I promise you, I will never lose a job to any of you. <laughs> and it was that, that mentality of, oh, you're going to work 24 hours a day? I'll work 25 hours a day. I'll invent time in a day to do more work than you to make sure that I get it. And my takeaway was that it's like, I understand why you're successful now. I, I understand that. And it's not even like a hustle culture thing, but it's just, it's the mentality of you need to be the person who shows up and does the work here. That's how it's like, you can't. And again, the how much time can you spend complaining versus trying to solve a problem? You have to be the one to show up with a solution. And I think that is a mindset that you have to have when you're coming into this from nowhere, when you're not born into the industry, when you're not born into money, when you're coming from some random town, someone you, you have to recognize not only is your competition already on the inside, but they're already trying to outwork people who are already on the inside. How do you break into that and contribute something? And that's what you have to understand that what you're up against here. Uh, now, conversely, what is the worst filmmaking advice that you have received? Hmm. You know, I'm not sure. Because I think the worst advice might kind of go in one ear and out the other. <laughs> you weren't listening anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if I would ever if I would retain it. I have to seriously think about that. Um, I, well, I would I would say this. So I I, you know, swiped credit cards to live out here for as long as I did before I was able to earn money. I was paying rent on a credit card. There was, there was um, uh, even daughter expenses that I put on a credit card and held that debt for years after the fact. I think it's very bad advice to tell somebody just, you know, charge your way through it. Just put your film on a credit card 
I understand why somebody would say that. It's like, you just got to get it done. However, yeah, the, the Robert Townsend uh, way of filmmaking, of course. <laughs> and I think that's very dangerous advice because it's, it's one step in a multi-step process. Now, I think there's definitely something to debt financing your way through it the way that any business would in a startup. Like right? when a business, when somebody wants to start a business, they go to the bank, they get a loan for that. Well, I'll preface that by saying when a rich person wants to start a business, <laughs> they go to the bank, the bank gives them money to start that business. And then the interest they pay on that loan, A, is a business expense, but it's, it is the cost of doing business to start up that business. To come out as an independent filmmaker, you yourself are a business. So the debt finance model of that is a valid model. And I did that too. I went and took out a personal loan to use that cash to pay rent long enough to get myself working. And the interest that I would pay on that's a business expense. It is the cost of trying to start my business. Mm -hmm. And there is something very valid to the idea of making it work that way. But it's part of a just multi-pronged, you need to understand money, really. You need to understand financial management. You need to have, that needs to be part of a larger plan. It's not just go swipe a credit card and pray. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would, you know, caution against that advice. Just, you know, charge it or whatever. And even me needing finishing funds for daughter and putting it on a credit card is knowing at, at a certain point, well, I'm working in TV now. I can pay this off eventually. Not right now. Or we're at, or at that point, we have a distributor, we have a sales, and we're trying to sell territories on this. We're going to get some MGs on this eventually. That is going to be what's paying that off. It, you know, part of a larger plan. Um, so I would say, say, be very cautious of that advice of just, you know, charge it, put it on credit cards or whatever. But I won't say that it doesn't work. Hmm. It, it's a, you, you, the indie filmmaker, are a business in the way somebody's restaurant is a business, and businesses are debt financed all the time. That's how they start. Hmm. What is your goal as a filmmaker? To, that's a good point. I'm gonna, I'll try to wrap this into something that I, what I heard. Uh, I wanna say it was, it was George Carlin and I've never been able to find the source of this again. Like I heard it once and it's another one of those things that I just heard and just always stuck with me. And he was talking about life as an artist and what that meant. And it was, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher it. I don't remember exactly what he said, but the sentiment was being an artist is a race against yourself with no finish line and no goal, no prize other than the self-satisfaction of one day being able to explain yourself symbolically. And when I think about my goal as a filmmaker, I think about that quote, and the idea being was like, I, I love the journey of this. I love the making of film. Like that's my favorite part. It's the creative design. It's the writing. It's the filmmaking. Everything that happens after that is extra credit. I love the doing of it. And the idea of what I'm working towards is that thing where I think he was getting at the idea of explaining yourself symbolically. If somebody were to ask me who I am, I want to be able to point at the work and say that. Mm -hmm. And that would be the best way I could ever answer that question. That's great. Great answer. Um, how do people support you? What's your call to action? How do, how do people help out Corey? Come out and see this film. We are, we are going to be in, in uh, limited theaters around starting February 10th. And on VOD, we should be on pretty much every VOD uh, platform, anywhere you would normally rent a movie, we should be there. And then we're going to be out on DVD May 9th. So, you know, support the film. 
Um, and uh, hope you like it. <laughs> uh, and final question, is making movies hard? Is making movies hard? It's harder than it has to be. <laughs> I'll say that. Uh, Corey Deshaun, thank you so much for being uh, on the program. Thank you so much. Please go check out Daughter, uh, and good luck in everything else you do. We're excited to see more work from you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. Eric, tell me all about Corey Deshaun. What was this conversation like? Um, Corey is an interesting guy because this is his first feature film, but he's already had a pretty impressive career as a television writer in Los Angeles for, for a number of years. Um, and as you know, we kind of mentioned in the intro, he was getting over the curse of you know getting out his first feature film, and he had two false starts. Um, one wow. that was it was it was kind of things were moving along it was looking pretty good it, that got shut down and then the second one was actually supposed to shoot in North Africa as he said and it was ready to go and then everything fell apart and so he was wow. just getting really frustrated because there was projects that were coming up that he wanted to direct and production companies were saying no you can't you can't do it because you haven't directed anything. So he said, all right, forget it. Well, uh, me and some of my friends are really frustrated with where we're at in our career. So we're just going to, we're going to band together. We're going to do this ourselves. And it was, it was so great to listen to it because he really does have the independent spirits of just, you know, if no one wants to help me do this, well, then I'm going to do this myself. And really rather than hand over the, the, the kind of, power to uh, a producer he's like why not just spend that exact same time which takes forever to find a producer and just be my own producer and learn how to do those things and he did it himself so he came up with a business model and he went out there pitched it and he raised the money and then he got to make a movie um the the only thing i i regret in looking back was i wish i had gotten a little bit more specific uh on his writing career and kind of how he got started there he he'd mentioned a lot mm. of things but he he was kind of vague about it, and I think that was because he wanted the story to move along a little bit more quickly. And I, I wanted to tell him, like, no, you can, let, like, like, this is the kind of podcast where we love getting stuck in the details. Like, so please take your time doing all of that. But he was very upfront about how he got his representation. He was very upfront about how he got this film together. Uh, and it sounded like it was kind of an amazing journey. And I, there's no doubt in my mind, this guy is, this guy's a juggernaut. He's going to just, now he's got this first one out of the way, he's going to make a bunch more. Um, did he talk about what his credits were with writing? Like, what, what are some of the things he's written on TV-wise? He did, and I am unprepared. Hang on. Talk amongst yourself. Uh, he had also written a movie called Trespassers, which had gone out and gotten made, but he really didn't. He had very little to do with that himself. Um, mm. Or at least, you know, he wasn't directing and writing like he did on, on this one. Uh, but he also right. did a t uh, television series called Million Little Things, which he, a million little things he did, oh my gosh, he did, I think, 14 episodes of that one, uh, along of, with... A, of, wow. Yeah. Um, and so, it, like, he, he, there was also two or three other, uh, uh, he mentioned in the, in the interview, two or three other shows that he was also on for, sometimes for short periods of time, and then some shows that just didn't end up going. Um, but he also made like a number of short films beforehand, which we didn't really get into any of that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, he was a fascinating guy. Nice. Awesome. Um, 
what's one thing that I should like take if I don't listen to it? Like, what's mm-hmm. one thing I should take away from this conversation with Corey? Uh, I think he would want to tell you uh, if you are frustrated in your career, if you feel like you're at a stopping point, or if you um, feel like you're not getting the kind of opportunities that you want then you have to go out and create them yourselves. Uh, like that's really what it's all about. And like, that's what he did with daughter and raising all of these funds and getting all of these people together. And, you know, he had talked about, he, he t- uh, took the UCLA uh, writing and producing program. And so when it came to this, he did the first draft of the production budget. He did the, the first ba- draft of the budget. You know, he got everything together mm. that you would need in order to go make your film. Like the real nuts and bolts stuff of just filmmaking. Like where are we going? What time is everyone getting there? Where, where are we getting our equipment from? So I think that he was very inspiring when it came to, when it came to that, just being a self-starter. Nice. Awesome. Million Little Things, ABC show. Did not know that. Very yeah, cool. It's a good Big one. Big time. Big time. Well, if you like this show and if you like the bonus show, you should uh, email us at podcast and making movies is hard.com. Eric reads these emails too. So if you have any kind words to say to Eric, that is a good place to do it. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. Um, let us know. Like we're doing this new thing where we're doing like double episodes. Like it's either a bonus episode with Eric or it's a, a, a rerun episode where it's kind of like a throwback Thursday type dealie. Um, hit us up. Let us know. Like, is this you know, uh, ringing your bells or is it, uh, you know, an, an annoyance that you, we should take away. <laughs> uh, we would like, I'd also like to thank Eric for conducting the interview, um, and taking this on, um, and also doing the edit, uh, of this wonderful bonus episode. Uh, Eric, you are a hero. Um, I'd also more importantly, and most importantly, like to thank you all for listening and we will talk to you guys on Monday. I mean, I could have looked it up myself, but I'd rather you tell me is, is uh, the truth of this. I, did, I didn't really do any research on Corey besides that, like, you know, his first movie. Who, who's it being released by? It's somebody fancy, right? I'm unprepared! <laughs> <laughs>